You're listening to Tasting Together with Maroki Tong and Andre Fu. So Andre, I know this podcast is being released on a very uh, special day for a lot of couples, but I'm going to say Gong Hei Fa Choi because uh, Lunar New Year has already started. Well, there we go. My wife was wearing red underwear for Lunar New Year. That was something that you told me about with superstition. Do you want, do you want to unpack the superstition a bit before we move on? Um, well, the superstition is obviously red is our lucky color. And usually when you are born, when it's your birth, like Zodiac. So um, I'm the year of the dragons. So is Anya. And usually when it's your year, it's actually not the most lucky year for you. Um, <laughs> and most it tends to be neutral. Although one of the horoscopes has told me that apparently wealth will come my way if I play my cards right. So I'm not, I'm, I'm waiting for that one. Um, but wearing red is usually helpful and red underwear is usually an item that we like to be gifted around that time. And I know for myself, I'm not superstitious. I love Lunar New Year for the food and just for the um, the visual element, like the beautiful decorations. And um, I love the, the characters in the Chinese Zodiac, the animals in the Chinese Zodiac. Um, but my last birth year, I'm a, I'm a pig. I was born year of the pig. And I had a very challenging uh, year of the pig. Um, and that was when I learned that it was my bad luck year and no one told me until halfway through. And I definitely was not wearing red underwear uh, the year of the pig. Um, but yeah, <laughs> happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. <laughs> it's like on that note, happy Valentine's Day as well. You know, I'm actually happy that we led with, with um, Lunar New Year and not Valentine's Day because this is... One of the times a year where I just, I absolutely despise most of the wine content being created. And this is one where I usually put my salty tweet out on uh, on Twitter. I don't usually put the content on Instagram. And I try very hard not to be the fun police because everybody's mouths work different. That's something that um, we've talked about a lot and something I've really taken to heart. But I still absolutely maintain that for the vast majority of people, wine and chocolate is a, a, a shitty pairing. You know, it, you know, it, it amplifies the bitterness in the chocolate. It clobbers the fruitiness in, in fruity wine. So if your jam is warm climate, California cab, you're just going to make it taste like tannin and bitter and your chocolate's just going to taste bitter. And it's just like, I, I wish you delivered that all as Edgar McSnob. Just uh, so you know, I, I'm looking at starting possibly a, a, uh, wine TikTok, and because I'm going to try and, I don't know, get with them young uns or do something fun or just change like i know most of the wine writing i do tends to be on instagram and i'm trying to just diversify a little bit and i i thought about bringing out edgar mcsnob if you do if you want to do that i'll I'll buy a monocle and a top hat i'll 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 go all in (laughs) uh i guess the the question i actually have more for you is have you had, like, since our last conversations around wine and chocolate, have you gone out and taken any of the recommendations that were discussed, such as, you know, trying um, darker chocolate with wine versus, you know, pairing milk chocolate? Because I know one of the conversation pieces that we have is that I realized you enjoy milk chocolate more and I enjoy dark chocolate more. And I think dark chocolate inherently pairs better with wine because you're not clashing that sugar content with wine, which is what can make 
both items taste poorer See, than, and, and, and than they should be. And, and that's what I'm generally talking about with the wine and chocolate pairings is that dark chocolate because that seems to be what people tend to go for, that 70% cocoa level. And yeah, no, I've like I've done enough of the pairings to know that it's just not for me. But Maroki, like if you genuinely love it, like by all means, like go ahead and do wine and chocolate. I, I think the other thing that, that bothers me more than the actual pairing itself is just how lazy and contrived the content is that it's you know the same similar type of wine writers either recycling the same content year in and year out without adding anything new to the discourse or you know if you're brand new to wine writing talking about it like you're the person who discovered this pairing and having an obligation to talk about it it's just i don't know i think you and i we work really hard to try to find unique things to talk about without being esoteric and it's just like for me Wine and chocolate is just like really low hanging fruit. I I mean, I guess like the question is, is that what other conversations could we have around Valentine's Day? So I think Ooh. I think Valentine's Day is incredibly um, people have a lot of opinions about Valentine's Day. You either are like heavy, heavy into it. You want to make it a special occasion for the loved one in your life um, or it's an opportunity to maybe win over the person in your life. Or for a lot of people, it is like an event that's heavily steeped in consumerism and, well, it and is, it kind it of is. like it's trivial. Con- yeah, it trivializes maybe meaningful relationships. And I remember even when Eric and I first started dating, he actually really very much refused the idea of like doing anything Valentine's related. That sounds and, like Eric. That and, very much sounds. And like it's Eric. funny because like I I wasn't into the Valentine's Day spirit before, but then because it was the first year of dating, I was like, but I I want you to do something for me. And he ended up actually gifting me something. And I think he wrote a card, but he said, this is a Lunar New Year gift for you. This is not uh, a Valentine's gift because oftentimes Lunar New Year, even though it is on a different calendar, tends to fall around the same time as Valentine's Day. All right. Well, I do have an idea of something to do for Valentine's Day that I think isn't as contrived as as wine and chocolate because I'm not opposed to the Valentine's Day thing. It's the wine and chocolate thing that bugs me. But before we do that, I really do want to focus on... Lunar New Year, because this is something I really look forward to. And like, I feel really lucky to have had um, friends of, of various parts of Southeast Asia share their traditions with me. I know I told you a quick story. Um, I'm going to send him the podcast because I don't think he's a regular listener. But my friend Sween, uh, who's of Vietnamese descent, he's actually, actually the person too who taught me that MSG is something that you shouldn't be afraid of. Because he would joke with me that MSG stands for make so great. And like that was something that's that stuck with mm-hmm. me like even to this day. But I remember being in Regina, which is very white, but has nice pockets of of cultures and the communities are a lot smaller. And him in, inviting me to the Vietnamese temple because he was dancing. He was doing the lion dance with the drumming. And like I was just really like happy to see my friend do this incredible celebration. And it's something that, you know, it it means a lot to me to learn more about things that are outside of my own culture and seeing just how important these events are because like when you grow up in rural Canada you just have this myopic view of like how important the Christian calendar is so when you get that experience to other things it's one of those things where you know we're at a weird point in Canadian history right now where I think there's a little bit of people questioning the strength of the diversity of this nation so when you see something really wonderful that can be shared across different cultures i think it's something where it's a good reminder of diversity being a strength in the country right i don't think mm-hmm. what it meant to be and, like super political or, or anything but like i don't know it's just something I, I i do think about around this time of year when lunar new year happens 
Yeah, well, it's important that you mentioned your friend because one of the things you brought up earlier was the Chinese zodiac, and the Chinese zodiac is actually different than the Vietnamese zodiac. Um, I think they actually do have a different animal um, in their zodiac calendar. And one of the things that uh, I have discussed around Lunar New Year, not only calling it Lunar New Year because it isn't just Chinese New Year. I'm Chinese. For us, obviously, it is Chinese New Year because we're celebrating New Year in accordance to my culture. But uh, it just is a new a time of New Year for people who follow the lunar calendar, which is the Vietnamese folks, Korean people. There's other um, Asian communities that do celebrate the holiday very differently. So I know Korean communities, um, white is actually more of their looking at them, their color they actually hand out. So their um, their envelopes that they give out for gifts is white. They have slightly different celebrations. And I know one of the conversations that we have, and actually one that we're actually going to probably bring up in, in our upcoming interview with um, Eric Chong of um, R&D on Spadina, I, one of the things we talked about was sort of the like even the if we're talking about consumerism around Lunar New Year and mm-hmm. how um, other cultures who have tried to participate or market towards those communities just need to be more considered because now we are if we're going to talk about diversity and if people want to become more diverse and become more inclusive to ensure that those uh, areas of inclusivity come with um, maybe a little bit of homework done beforehand and even frankly just respect right like you know, it's one thing where from the outside in, you see a lot of red for Chinese New Year. You go to Chinatown in, in Toronto, you see red lanterns everywhere around that Because time we're Chinese. Of year. And, and that's, that's it. it's a lucky color for us, but it's not for everyone. But I mean, that's it though. Like, you know, if if I ran a shoe company and wanted to put together red shoes, I could guess that that would do really well around Lunar New Year as opposed to taking some time and engaging with the community, with com- community leaders, and not necessarily just one person who you consider to be an expert on the culture. Like it, the thing I love about Lunar New Year is because there isn't, um, um, like a religion, a religiosity around it, like Christmas or Easter with the with the Christian calendar that's been been changed. Like it's just like it's a really easy holiday to share, but at the same time, you need to make sure you're not lampooning it, like not being lazy it doesn't take a lot of work to do a quick google search about what the traditions are and understanding that like what my how the way my vietnamese friend celebrates lunar new year is different than how my chinese friends celebrate lunar new year well and it just indicate we're not one homogenous group of people yeah right like asian people is not one one homogenous group they're actually there's a fine example around this is um uh uh costco was putting out right uh yellow chrysanthemums and they were in celebration of Lunar New Year, and that's considered extremely bad luck for Chinese culture, but it's actually considered good luck for Vietnamese culture. But they didn't actually differentiate that. They just kind of put that out there into the world. And that kind of lumps us all into one category, which is untrue. Yeah. On that note, um, (laughs) we actually spoke with Chef Eric Chong before recording this intro. So we knew that the conversation, we do get into some uh, conversations about identity and culture and um, maybe not specifically Lunar New Year uh, centric, but we definitely talk about Chinese food and the North American and uh, as well the Chinese perception of Chinese food, which was a surprise to me to have the conversation because when it comes to ignorance towards uh, market placement, I always just assume it's white people's fault. But it turns out that it's not just completely white people's fault in this. So, uh, yeah. Maroki, I know that your favorite thing about uh, having a successful wine and food podcast is you get to indulge your fangirlness. 
Why do you keep outing me, Andre? Every single time we freaking are about to interview someone I admire to be like, yeah, Maroki, you're such a fangirl. You like follow all these people around the world just so you can have a chance to eat their food and then maybe talk to them. Well, I mean, in this case, you literally did follow them around the world. Uh, you know, we started, I guess, your adventure in Hong Kong, and it's like very interesting that we've now ended up back in Toronto. It's true. It's true. So for those of you who haven't listened to the previous episodes of Tasting Together yet, <clears throat> you should. Yes, you should. And subscribe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when, yes, you should subscribe. Uh, when I was in Hong Kong in November, I thought to myself, well, I'm in Hong Kong. I've had the chance to meet Alvin Lung. And of course, you and I have eaten his cuisine, um, judged his cuisine, in fact, as part of the culinary showdown a couple of years ago. What would be a better opportunity than to actually dine at one of his restaurants? And yep. I thought to myself, well, I wonder if he's around because I know he kind of, you know, sh- uh, splits his time between Canada and Hong Kong. And I reached out to the PR and lo and behold, ended up in Hong Kong, ended up dining at not just one. I had already booked Bow Innovation, <laughs> but ended up dining at three of his restaurants over my visit, one of them with Alvin. And then he gave me very generously two hours of time. And I knew that I had to take it full circle and get the chance to dine at R&D, which is his partnership restaurant with himself and Eric Chong, who was the winner of MasterChef Canada season one. And it that, that food just knocked my family's socks off. And Eric, I know you're on air with us already, but you know how it's like, how hard it is to please your Asian parents when it comes to uh, food and cuisine. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Even <laughs> it's not even just about uh, pleasing parents with cuisine. It's it's about pre- pleasing them with uh, the right price point. Like even they're like, "Man, your restaurant's too expensive. I don't want to eat there." <laughs> <laughs> they're used to like the cheap Chinatowner when you go to like Mississauga or something, and your bills, you know, like less than a hundred bucks. <laughs> oh man, you know um... what? We're we're gonna definitely touch on that later on in the interview because that's something that like Maroki and I have actually talked uh, quite a bit about. That uh, we talked about that on a show last year we've talked about it off the microphone and that's definitely something i want to unpack with you but i I know we've got some uh got some other questions to dig dig into before that um taking a quick look here sir i have the list no well i will say like so one of the things we introduced you as obviously you were the winner of masterchef canada season one and i will admit i got into masterchef canada a little late in the game i missed the first season i'm gonna have to go back (laughs) but it I, I want to hear from you because it, it's been a few years now and maybe for our listeners who's, you know, new to the whole to the whole MasterChef Canada experience. What was it like being part of the inaugural first season? Let's go down a trip down memory lane. And because you're it's so many years from that now. But what was it like being like the first MasterChef Canada? Like, what is that like? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's been uh, a decade now, to, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, I would say it's it was definitely you didn't know how weird it was until the other seasons came up because once I befriended, um, you know, the subsequent contestants and I think I made an appearance in like four, even four seasons after that. Um, so like season two, three, four, I got to at least go and visit and do some, something with them. Um, then you really see like, man, season one is really a, uh, kind of like a Guinea pig. Like they, they really <laughs> fixed all the mistakes from season one. <laughs> so season one, if, if a lot of people don't know, it was only filmed in six weeks. Um, and you rarely got days off. The days off you got was uh, um, spent like training in the kitchen. Wow. So you do get some time uh, training with a professional chef um, just so that your skills do progress during the show. Um, but a lot of people have the misconception of like, oh, they actually like give you recipes, but they don't. 
So I'll, I'll use one example. Like season one, we had to make a baked Alaska. And I'm sure if you guys are fans of the show or, or seen the show, everybody says, um, oh my God, this is my first time making it on the show, right? And then everybody at home is like, well, how can they be so good if this is their first time making it? Um, so for something like baked Alaska, they showed us how to make sponge cake, um, not in this particular order, but like one lesson, we learned how to make sponge cake. One lesson, we learned how to make ice cream. And another lesson, we learned how to make meringue. And a baked Alaska, for those of you who don't know, is essentially uh, ice cream wrapped in sponge cake and then topped with meringue and baked in the oven. Um, so we had all the tools to make a baked Alaska, although we've never actually made one ourselves. So when people say like, oh, this is my first time making it on camera, they're not lying, but we do have the tools um, given to us, given to us to actually execute it. Oh, I love that. Mm. And I'm guessing, like, I'm guessing you make a lot of baked Alaskas now. Like, that's something that you use in the regular repertoire at home. Or have you never made a baked Alaska since then? I have never made a baked Alaska since then. It is like <laughs> the most inefficient dessert ever. You're like uh. trying to get this super cold dessert to bake in an oven. <laughs> I love like when you read like really old recipes and methods that were in fashion like the one of the things that made me fall in love with food was uh julia child's mastering the art of french cooking and you read these cookbooks and there's so many like unnecessary steps that add nothing to the flavor of the final dish that add nothing to the plating and you know it's just funny to think that like back when these books were written back when these recipes were invented like they were you know, super innovative and super exciting at the time. And I don't know, I think it's just kind of interesting to see how things have kind of evolved to actually be functional. Like when you see a recipe, like even when you see really fancy platings. Um, yeah. I, I guess one thing, just going back to like what we were saying at the beginning, you were talking about like price point and pleasing Asian parents. As you guys can tell, I do not have Asian parents. Um, very white, very Western Canadian, as we say often. But I mean, one thing I, I have a question about is... Your restaurant, uh, R&D, located in Chinatown, and I have my own like memories of of Chinatown when I first moved to Toronto in 2007. Uh, Yuan. I'm sure I butchered the name of that, but that was one of my favorite places because you could get amazing barbecue pork for like pocket change. Uh, I still frequent Sky Dragon for dim sum, where you know your plates are are three dollars a, a piece. Um, do you think Toronto is ready for? high-end Chinese cuisine. Are we ready to see Chinese cuisine elevated? Yeah, it's funny that you ask that. Uh, I think there there is a trend um, in Toronto, especially in the restaurant scene overall, about uh, fine dining becoming more prevalent. Uh, ever since the Michelin Guide came to Toronto, which first in Canada was uh, completely unheard of. Like for the longest time, you know, everyone's asking like, oh, why doesn't Canada have a Michelin Guide? We don't really have our own like defined cuisine. Maybe that's what they thought. Um, but then like Allo was kind of the forefront of, starting the trend for like tasty menus and then now you see more modern asian uh fusion restaurants right so like before it was pretty much just r&d and dilo uh we're the only ones patois kind of does fusion with like their caribbean and, and chinese and then you have people like mimi's uh which does more higher end chinese uc food and uh sunny's chinese as well um so there is definitely a bigger uh i would say um demand for higher end cuisine especially asian cuisine and that's why uh, that, that's why I was <laughs> I was late because I, I had a meeting with uh, our designers that that went very late uh, for our new restaurant that's going to be tasting menu only as well. Oh wow! Any any uh, any tea you want to spill on the name of the restaurant? What what it's called? Where it's opening? When it's opening? Uh, yeah. So yeah, I can divulge. I, I don't know if it's like too public yet, but um, we just named the restaurant uh, Akin. 
So akin uh, has multiple meanings. It's like definition-wise, it it means uh, similar of nature or character, and it sort of helps describe our food as well because our dishes will have elements that are similar to what they're inspired by, uh, but modernize it my our way. So, for example, like we'll be doing a modern take on omurice. Um, everybody knows omurice, I think, from that famous like Instagram chef that puts an omelet over rice, cuts it open, and then it like spills over top. Uh, mm-hmm. Then they usually top it with gravy. So instead of an omelet, we'll do like a porcini sabayon from a canister. So like nice aerated uh, mushroom sabayon. And then instead of a typical gravy, we'll do a rich bordelaise and we'll be using like premium Japanese rice. Uh, instead oh, of your wow. typical like red rice with a little bit of wagyu beef um, as part of our rice dish. So in essence, in essence, it's an omurice, just different. So it's akin in that sense. And then um, akin can also mean like related by blood. So although Alvin and I are not related by blood. We're essentially family at this point. Uh, we've been working together for over a decade. He's kind of a mentor of mine. Um, and uh, uh, so the way akin will be spelled is A capital K I N. So only the K is capitalized. And um, uh, my grandfather's first name is Kin, uh, Kin Hunging. So he was a huge inspiration for me uh, for even becoming a chef. He was a dim sum chef. So there's a, there's a lot of, of reasons why akin. It's um, Tasting menu only restaurant uh, here in Toronto. Um, it's at 51 Colburn Street, so like Colburn and Church. It's about uh, 28 seats on the wow. main floor with a four four person seat uh, in the chef on the chef counter. That's actually like inside of the kitchen, so the same counter that we're plating the food. Um, these four lucky guests get to actually be a part of that same counter uh, and enjoy that experience. And then we have a eight to ten person private dining room downstairs as well. Man, that's exciting. I feel like I got a lot of tea because I know I was following the journey on Instagram. And I think what I had seen at the time was just like tasting restaurant coming. And my brain actually, and this is where I even had to check, you know, check my bias. I was wondering to myself, I was like, oh, is he going to open up a more Western style restaurant? Because as you said, tasting menu is not something we typically see in Asian cuisine. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you actually were choosing to just flip, you know, the flip the switch and go in the complete other direction. And at the time, it was just the teases were tasting menu and I was just seeing the bones of the restaurant. So hearing you describe what you have now um, makes me super excited, especially the very izakaya style of dying to like lesser seats in the house, a more intimate experience. What do you say to people? Like, I know you said there's a demand for but you know, as you said, we have our parents who still think, um, you know, Asian food should be cheap and cheerful or Chinese food should be cheap and cheerful. And there's people I've heard from a few restaurants um, as well uh, who have fine dining Asian or moving towards higher end Asian dining say that sometimes it is a bit of a struggle to convince someone to spend the dollars on their cuisine um, because there is inherently still this sort of stereotype and this like archetype around what Chinese cuisine is all about, which is untrue, by the way. I think it's just something For that... Sure. It has been perpetuated in Western culture. So what would you your response be to people who say things like that or you've come up with that sort of resistance? Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's a great question because when we first opened R&D, um, you know, I'm obviously jaded and biased because I, I am Chinese, but like I don't understand still to this point how people can pay like $26 for ravioli but can't pay that amount for dim sum. And it's the same thing. We, we have to make it by hand. We have to make it fresh every day. We stuff it with uh, delicious filling. And it's essentially the same labor. But Italians just exude rich wealth, luxury, deliciousness. And then Chinese are just like cheap and cheerful. <laughs> and that's kind of the uphill battle that we have to face, right? But um, when you're thinking about fine dining, the reason why we're, we're doing this, men- this 
is because one um there's a gap in the market right because every time somebody thinks a tasting menu in toronto there, there is not a single uh asian fusion one the only ones that come to mind are the really expensive japanese uh sushi restaurants so makases right mm-hmm. so um like uh sushi is is another like level of 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 decadence of, of paying like 500 plus because you're getting these imported fish um what we're doing different and why we can can charge the price that we're uh charging is because we're actually just providing a tasting menu except it has asian influence so the big difference is that um to help combat the uphill battle is that we're not going to take uh classic dishes and try and sell it at a very expensive price that that is an uphill battle always so for example what i mean by that is um a fried rice end of the day a fried rice will always be viewed as a fried rice if i put wagyu mm-hmm. beef on it everyone will just be like well it's a fried rice same with a steamed fish doesn't matter if i get the most expensive fish in the world um, if a chinese comes to the restaurant unfortunately they're going to be like well this is a steamed fish why am i paying hundred dollars eighty dollars for it whatever that price may be so we're not trying to fight that battle <laughs> i'm not doing any dishes that can even resemble um I... a classic chinese dish because everybody will mm. always have that stigma this is going to be a fried noodle this can be a fried rice this can be a steamed fish I'll, I'll never be able to beat that there is an exception uh with one dish at r&d but which is our duck our, our infamous duck is um like a huge labor process where it takes like, best in the city duck yeah dry age for two weeks brine for 24 hours slow cook for three hours um that's different because peking duck has slowly uh gained notoriety so when people even go to a chinese restaurant now it's going to be at least 80 dollars. like ours is not far from the price although it's 120 we we use organic ontario ducks they are like five pounds each way meatier serve medium <laughs> rare brine for 24 hours it's just a labor of love so that one has has value perceived value right but i can never sell a fish for whatever like 80 bucks <laughs> you I, know it's just never possible i i made a peking duck once and i don't know if i have the um patience to do that again because i had to keep this duck at you know safe food temperature for days while i was trying to get the skin to dry out so it would get crispy and it still didn't turn out the way i wanted it to so i'm looking forward to coming to r&d and tasting yours because like i'm seeing in the notes that maroki put together preparing for this interview that your peking duck is the best in the city according to maroki um no it was it's it's on their menu literally says best duck in the city (laughs) which for me was it was like it was fighting words man like peking (laughs) duck that is has emotional and visceral responses from asian people and chinese people everywhere so i was like ooh, fighting words but i will say it was so freaking delicious like it was so so good and and not that i could ever replicate it eric but when you were describing the process i was like because everyone was there. My parents were there in all their Peking duck experience. And they kept saying, like, they're like, I wonder how they made this. I wonder how. And I was like, I don't know, man. I, I really don't. I, I'm not sure. I know Alvin's told me about some of his restaurants. How to do this. But I don't know. Eric's imparted some of that. He does. So at least now, with you telling us your process, I can at least go back to my family and be like, he makes it like this. Yeah, and there's only, feel- like, pieces of it. There, there's obviously many more layers to, to creating it. But, yeah, in essence, it's it's that <laughs> that's fantastic okay so one thing i was a little surprised surprised about is listening to you talk about the the cultural aspect of people not willing to spend a lot of money on chinese cuisine because this was one where um 
I actually uh, sent something that's been making the rounds with some of the the chefs in the city. A, a story of um, a family where an Asian man has married into a white family, where one of the sisters in laws is uh, a chef working in fine dining, and the um, the Chinese man who is married into the family is also a chef, but a Chinese chef, and the way that the sister-in-law looks down on him and the way he talks about food is is um, frankly condescending to the point where once the story has gone public, apparently the sister-in-law has lost her job. I know I'm completely paraphrasing, but um, I, I was concerned, and this is a, conver- a brief conversation I had with Maroki and didn't get a chance to unpack it more, was that it's not just Asian people who are not willing to spend the money, but a perception with white people of what, white, what we expect Chinese food to be. Do you do you think that it's it's... Like I guess a broader problem with the perception of Chinese food that um, you know that that people are just not willing to spend the money for it, and it's 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 a bigger problem. I think it's just um, um, to, to be honest, it's it has been an uphill battle, but it, I think it's just because of the years of 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 how the culture has viewed Chinese food. It's it's a big change that's going to have to come. So like. Um, for the longest time, that's that's why to the to this day we still don't do lunch, because lunch is a, a huge uphill battle, especially being located in Chinatown. For the people that come to Chinatown for lunch, they want to spend maybe like ten, fifteen dollars, twenty dollars max, and they want to be in and out. And that is not something that I'm willing to do to to cheapen the brand, right? Um, yeah. Although I, I could make something for like ten, twenty bucks and maybe turn a profit, it's not worth it to give them access at a cheaper version of the brand. Um, so. You know, it's end of the day. It's just a um, how much is Chinese food uh, uh, visible to people that aren't Chinese is essentially the 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 issue here. So, like the people that aren't immersed in our culture, is very difficult for them to get um, a broader view without traveling outside of Toronto, right? So, like the you know, I, I really don't want to, like, shit on... Uh, can I swear on this? Sorry. No, yeah, you did. It's yeah. fine. It's too late. You already I, said it. I, I really don't want to, you know, speak poorly about uh, a restaurant. But, like, um, places like Panda Express is is an absolute disgrace. <laughs> like, it's it's so bad. And, like, I did a little project where I just went over there and, and I just asked... I, I just interviewed people because I was curious. Like, what, what do people like about it? I don't know if either of you have ever had Panda Express, but yeah. it's... It's, it's not Chinese food at all. It's like Americanized Chinese food, right? Which is fine. Um, like, I don't think they're claiming to be authentic by any means. But like, for me to go and ask people, oh, why do you like this place? And they say, I like this because I like Chinese food. Wow. Then, that, okay. then to me, I, and this is like majority of people that I asked. I, I, I just did this as a project with my chef. And they say, I love Chinese food. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like, where else do you guys eat Chinese food? And they're like, oh, Shanghai 360. Uh, Banchu walk I love Mandarin buffet and this is like a consistent thing that they're that they're saying <laughs> wow. so it's, it's yeah. just a it's not a form of them looking down on Chinese food it's a form of uh, uneducated people just like uh, ignorance and it's not like they're saying it maliciously they genuinely believe this is Chinese food and they genuinely enjoy it but as a Chinese person when I I know what <laughs> like a fried rice should taste like not like white rice with like no wok flavor and just seasoned with soy i'm like man this isn't chinese food this is like like whitewashed chinese food but like it's the most easily accessible form of chinese food for the majority of the population right 
it's a it's a large conversation because like it's intimidating for people that don't speak Chinese to go to Chinatown and go to a restaurant and maybe look at a menu that only has Chinese or surrounded by people speaking Chinese. It's very intimidating. I understand that. So fusion restaurants like myself and other restaurants in the city where we give them a glimpse of Asian flavors, but in a kind of a more acceptable environment to them, it makes them a bit more comfortable. But you have to pay for that comfort. Right? You, you, so, you know, it. but it, it it's something where I really wish that people would be more comfortable being uncomfortable going into restaurants because you know my experiences with chinatown when i moved to like i I learned that i loved chicken feet from going to dim sum like that's something that not a lot of white people eat i mean we can we can full-on say that and i just had a philosophy when i moved to toronto that i would eat first and ask questions later and like i've gone into restaurants where the language barrier was pretty high but you know food is a fairly universal language and the thing is I was never met with disdain when I would point at something and like give a thumbs up or point at an item on the menu and give a thumbs up and, and you know, use body language to say that I wanted to try that, right? So, you know, I think, I, I think yeah, I think there's something to be said about the whole discomfort thing too because like, you know, the the flip side of the conversation is is that most Chinese immigrants who landed in North America were very uncomfortable all the time too and we yeah. learned how to adapt. So, you know? Oh wow, we're going we're going to like a really a really high level that we need to get get people uncomfortable. Yeah, I won't I won't I won't go down that tangent a little bit too much, but I, No, I, I, I appreciate I, I appreciate I mean I mean part of this conversation that's sort of a big picture is how do we fight the uphill battle of changing the perception of food, right? Like you know, and Eric, sometimes maybe it's, it's as simple as Eric's piece about describing that a ravioli, the process to make a ravioli and to craft a ravioli, making dim sum is the same thing. Like, it's not just a magically finished thing that you buy from TNT Frozen. Yeah, but, right? we, but someone we, had to but, someone but, had to make that. But we 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 do have a, a disconnect with the culture on this continent in particular that a place like Olive Garden in Italy can exist, right? Where you know we don't have the Chinese version of Italy yet, and I think what we need is is someone like like Eric for you to keep fighting the fight that hopefully your brand grows that you could become the Chinese Italy and help educate and re-educate an entire continent of people. I know I'm giving you a big mission here, but you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's what, you know, the hope would be like as someone who loves food. Right. Right. And I think, I think to be fair, like uh, I think TNT is doing a pretty good job at uh, breaking the bridge. So they're essentially like uh, the largest Asian grocery store, but they have a great, uh, look to it, you know. When you yeah. walk into TNT, you don't really know it's like a Chinese supermarket, but it's loaded with like Asian ingredients. But it's a very accessible. So anytime I go to TNT, yeah, I see a bunch of Asians, but I also see a lot of like non-Asians, which is a uh, like great. Like people are interested; they just want to make sure they are comfortable, and that just goes oh, yes. back to you know why why people keep eating this fast food. It's easy for them to access. Yeah. It. Well, and, and, and if to I be can fair, give, if I, can I give, love if, TNT. If, if like, I, I love TNT. On record. I love my TNT. <laughs> if I can give another shout out too, I'm a big fan of Nations Experience as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, another great, great place. And, and I mean, it's I, I mean, it's one thing too where I think it's a, a larger, um, a larger problem as well. I've spoken Mar- with Maroki about this as well. Is one thing that I find frustrating as a, a white guy who likes. Geez, I've never, I've never talked about my own race as much in an entire interview before, uh, which is really strange. Anyways. Um, one thing that I've found frustrating as someone who likes to experience culture through food, because food really is a universal language, is how difficult it is to find English language resources for learning about Chinese cuisine, right? 
And I, I don't even know where the starting point is is for that. Maybe I'm not looking in the right place. Maybe I'm not looking hard enough. But it's another thing that is difficult. Is difficult. Like where I've gone into uh, Chinese supermarkets, like looking for. I, I think I wanted to learn to make dan dan noodles. So to get the pickled mustard greens, I had to go onto multiple websites, write down the characters for the ingredient, and walk into a Chinese grocery store and hope that I could match the ingredient to what I was looking for and make sure it looks like what I was looking for online. Like that's a challenge as well, where it is intimidating to do that. I think that like segues to a great point of uh, what does authenticity mean? Because I, I imagine when you're trying to make like a Danda noodle, you're trying to make an authentic version so you can try it, right? But yeah. I don't even know if majority of the people have had an authentic Danda noodle. That's just one example, right? Have you had a, a real one before? No, I, I, Hong Kong is on my is on my list now because of uh, like me living vicariously through. Maroki and it's just I I wouldn't know if what I've had is is authentic. Mm. Like there's um a restaurant I, I live in Hamilton uh, Szechuan Noodle Bowl. There's one on on Bloor Street. I love the food from it, but I don't know if it's authentic. It, it seems authentic. It certainly doesn't uh, doesn't taste like what I get from Panda Express. Yeah. So like end of the day, uh, everybody has their own perception of authenticity. So like that's why it, even that for Chinese food, there's so many different interpretations. It's quite an uphill battle because. Um, you know, the people that are eating Panda Express could think that that's authentic Chinese food. Uh, um, obviously, like, <laughs> you know, you know, Chinese know it's not. But like, who are, who are we to say it, it's not? Because, um, you know, one lesson I learned when we open R&D is that a lot of people like to think they they want authentic food until you give them real authentic food. So for example, um, one one easy example is that we used to make our own oyster sauce from scratch. Right, like in the authentic way, we would use fresh oysters, um, dry, a mixture of dry oysters, and it, to me, it tasted phenomenal. It tasted like, like a homemade version that I tasted in in Hong Kong in various restaurants in Hong Kong. We brought that to Canada, um, we served it with a uh, oyster dish, and people were like, "Man, this tastes, this tastes pretty weird. It's like pretty strong in oyster flavor." They're used to the Lee Kum Kee oyster sauce, like the the oyster sauce that almost mm-hmm. everybody in Canada grew up with. So. It's not. It doesn't matter if it's truly authentic. It only matters if people like it. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, it's like authenticity is kind of a, a a moot point. It needs to be authentic enough where people still enjoy it, like <laughs> like chicken feet. Mm-hmm. Well, this conversation yeah. has moved so far from where I thought we were going at the beginning, Maroki. But I'm I'm really really uh, appreciating this. Do do we? How do we segue to Lunar New Year from this? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe part of what Lunar New Year is, is just constantly continuing an opportunity to continue having conversations, bigger conversations than just saying, oh, happy Lunar New Year. Let's all go eat some dim sum with and drink some sparkling wine. Like, like instead of having a high level conversation every year, let's take each year to peel it back and get into a bigger conversation about what is um, surrounding the future of Asian, Pan-Asian, Chinese cuisine, Japanese cuisine, Korean cuisine um, in Toronto and Canada and beyond. So maybe, you know, kind of just rolling all the way back into R&D, like, do you have, are you doing anything for Lunar New Year, Eric? Or are you just head down, focus on the restaurant? And maybe as a wrap-up question, considering you said, you know, it's hard to, hard to serve fried rice, but you serve fried rice at your restaurant. What makes your fried rice at R&D so awesome that people will come and pay the uh, the extra dollars for it? Um, yeah, so we are going to be offering a Lunar New Year specials. Um, we do every year because uh, it's kind of the the only time of the year where we get like a lot of Asians. <laughs> Predominantly, <laughs> our, uh, our demographic is mostly um, non-Asian as well as like... Uh, 
uh, English-speaking Asians. Um, but like around Lunar New Year time, we'll get a lot of requests like, oh, do you have Chinese menus? <laughs> um, nice. Why do we offer fried rice? Well, end of the day, we're still an Asian restaurant. So people still have a certain expectation of what an Asian restaurant should offer, right? Um, so when people come in, they, they are expecting at least one fried rice. So we tried to make one that is unique and delicious. Um, so we don't use any soy sauce in our fried rice. I thought it would be um, much more unique to have a fried rice that that tastes like umami, tastes like wok flavor, but have no soy because that's what everybody else does. And we're trying to do things differently, right? So our, our main ingredient is lam choy, which is like a preserved olive leaf, um, which adds a lot of natural umami. And then we we use uh, eight different kinds of mushrooms in our fried rice. And, and mushrooms, like we have premium mushrooms like Hen of the Woods or, or maitake, whatever you want to call them. Um, and we kind of use uh, each mushroom in a different manner. So like porcinis, we turn into a butter. Uh, shiitakes, we turn into an exo. Um, maitake, shimiji, and uh, brown beech, we turn into a ragu that we mix throughout the fried rice. Uh, enokis, we dehydrate and portobellos we smoke uh, to boost the wok flavor. And then we even top it with a uh, something I call Singapore Crunch, which is inspired by Singaporean cereal crown. So it's like a cereal that we make infused with brown butter, curry leaves, and Thai chili. And it's quite unique that it adds like a nice... Did you have the fried rice, Mirogi? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, so, it, so it adds a... It's Instagrammableness <laughs> on top of all of it. It looks like a little fairy forest when it comes out. It is so good. Yeah, that was the goal. It, it adds um, a much unique and dynamic texture as eating the fried rice because i mm-hmm. find most fried rices that you go out to eat it's kind of that one texture one note of just like soft sometimes fluffy uh, but this i really wanted different textures and layers of flavor so when you have it with the cereal it's like wow this is crunchy umami a little bit sweet and then you just have some of the rice it's like smoky savory uh umami so there, there's layers to the fried rice and i think that's what makes ours quite unique we don't use regular jasmine rice we uh even make coconut rice because each grain of rice, when you have our fried rice, is like individually separated, beautifully coated with um, a little bit of oil. And that oil is what picks up a lot of the wok flavor. Oh, my God. Mm. Eric, you had me at eight different kinds of mushrooms. <laughs> but the rest of it just sounds better and better. I I cannot wait to go and try that fried rice. Yeah, I think please. as they say in a, in a Shokugeki no Soma, which is an anime about food, they talk about like the beauty of a perfectly of a perfect fried rice is when each of those grains is actually coated in the oil and like not clumped together. And there's an individuality to the grains as well as the entire plate itself. And it it is absolutely delicious. And like I Did said, your Eric, come off I, when you ate it. <laughs> someone's watched the anime i love it i think i would have been kicked out of the restaurant if that happened so i i held on tightly but um i don't know if your parents are still complaining about whether about paying for your food but i can say my parents more than happily paid for the food at your restaurant i'm very happy to hear that eric i want to thank you very much for giving us the time and having a broader discussion about uh perception of chinese food in the market and, and i for one, um, salute you with trying to elevate the food and, and change minds. And uh, I'm looking forward to visiting R&D sometime in the near future. Thank you very much. I'm really not used to being uncomfortable with my whiteness. So, I mean, I tried to be careful in that uh, in that interview because I, I just I think it's an important conversation to have about how to make the the food scene in Toronto and in Canada better and more diverse and 
I don't know. I think it's a lot good of- to have a frank conversation that isn't just always surface level. Like, yeah. I actually I really appreciated Eric's willingness to open up about some of the things that need to change or some of the things that make it hard to penetrate um, the market, yeah. right? Like making like Chinese food that costs a certain way um, appeals to a certain audience and the challenges around it. And what are some of the system, like historically systemic, um, you know, like, uh, like, I don't know how to describe it, like, sy- like systemic prejudices or stereotypes or opinions that have been cultivated over the years that have led to where we are at present. And yep. sometimes an opportunity like, you know, Lunar New Year is an opportunity to maybe when people's are, you know, hearts are the most open, the ears are most open to having those conversations. It's very similar to why, you know, certain conversations are opened up during Black History Month. Yep. It's, it's not always about celebration. The celebration exists because we are also trying to have a conversation about, about some of the most exploitative histories that are out there and to pretend that it doesn't exist is lying to ourselves. And when there's food involved, I mean, that's, a way to bring people together at the end, even if the conversation's hard. So yeah, it's an opportunity to break bread together a little bit. Um, So coming back to Valentine's day, Mm -hmm. we've talked a bit about, like I said, my disdain for, for wine and chocolate. You like wine and chocolate. Do you love it? Or do you just like, you like it, you understand it. You're, you're trying to be contrarian to my Edgar McSnob view or, or do like, do you actually love it? So, I don't, it's not like I love in the sense like, oh, I just dream about my wine and chocolate pairings. Um, now <laughs> one of the things I need, one, no, but one of the things I need to admit is that I don't really do like, I understand food and wine pairings. I like recommending it because I think it's something that a lot of wine drinkers enjoy, right? Like more than anything else, pe- people like to know what it pairs with. I tend to drink wine for wine and I eat food for food. I don't always think about like wine and food pairings that's i i tend to actually prefer to do the two separately because i think it's a very different experience when i'm tasting wine on its own it tastes very different than when i'm tasting with food so they're two completely different experiences and i do tend to like the isolated experience of drinking wine so it's not just chocolate it applies to my relationship with food everywhere that being said i have never not paired wine with chocolate like i've not ever (laughs) had something come to my plate um, that was chocolate and been like, oh, I refuse to drink wine with it in this moment. I actually will still give it a shot. Now, some of the times it's worked and sometimes it's not worked. Uh-huh, and that's uh-huh. okay. You know what? You actually touched on something where, um, like, if you ever read the back label of an ADX wine, I never make food recommendations on that. And actually, Maroki, it's partly your fault uh, just because it's something I've really reflected on. Because when you're new to wine writing... You know, you kind of feel like you have this manual that you have to follow when you're discern, uh, like uh, dis- dispelling content to your listeners, to your audience. That red wine with red meat, and if you want to be edgy, you can mix things up. And this just kind of like this rubric of like what's supposed to go with what. And you know, it's just recently over the past few years where the concept of Eurocentric um, tasting notes has really become front of mind, and that's something that. I think really holds true in the wine world is that most of the tasting notes, even if wines come from Australia or South Africa, have very continental food recommendations with them. And when you're dealing with aromatic whites, when they're being edgy and recommending them with uh, Asian cuisines, that's usually where the conversation ends. And it lumps an entire continent of people in one group. 
like whether you're talking about Indian food, Korean food, Vietnamese or Chinese food. And even when you're talking about Chinese food, you have an entire country to deal with, whether you're talking about Szechuan versus uh, Hong Kong cuisine. Right. So like mm. everybody's mouth works different. Everybody's experiences is different. And people are going to like different foods with different wines, regardless of what our Eurocentric wine education says. When I made the wine list for Kalgoorlie, uh, you know, I was really happy that the owner loved the Gewürztraminer that I had for him and he decided to list it. I th- still, for me, I actually like Gewürztraminer with Indian food. It's one of the hard and fast food pairings that I like that I think works really well. The aromatics from the wine match the aromatics of the spices that go into a lot of the Indian dishes. The best-selling wine on Abhishek's wine list was um, a Ripasso a full-bodied red wine <laughs> that never in a million years I would think to recommend. And the people who were ordering it were Indian people. So these are the people who decide what wine go with their food. And me as a journalist to disagree with them, frankly, just makes me full of shit. Like, I, I think it's fair to ask questions about, like, why does this go with this group of people? And I never had a chance to sit down and talk about it. But I think it's something to think about in the future. Um, I have some speculations as to why, but I'm going to I'm going to hold that conversation for another day because we were I know we wanted to circle back to Valentine's <laughs> Day. And I don't know if chocolate I don't know if chocolate was the only reason. But I think one of the other reasons is just trying to decide like, OK, oh, we thank think you for putting the wheels. Isn't... Thank you for putting the wheels back on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> if we think that uh, that, you know, there isn't really the, the most thoughtful wine content out there around Valentine's Day. So then if we were to seize the day and seize the opportunity what would be great Valentine's Day wine content? I love pairing wines with experiences. And I think in this case, I thought I would issue the challenge of pairing wines with our sweeties. Pairing wines with our sweeties. So when you're saying pairing wines with our sweeties, uh, in this case, our loved ones yeah. or our partner, yeah. um, is it kind of like the wine we would want to share together that night or the wine they would want to share together that night? Wine gift things that we would give to them other kind of food pairings outside of chocolate oh i think i've got a pairing that'll be a little bit more fun and and i don't know if eric or anya actually listen to the podcast but i was thinking it might be fun to match a wine to their personality for valentine's day match a wine to their personality so not necessarily necessarily what they like because i know what anya likes i know what eric likes but it's what we're trying to pair it's like if the we were picking the wine that represented them what do you think anya likes what does anya like I want to see She's if you... sparkling queen. Yeah, she is a sparkling queen. That, she is sparkling it. queen. You have literally told me that the sparkling <laughs> section in the basement cannot be touched without her permission, especially during her pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, there was uh, there were some murder level bottles if they'd been opened the, during the year that she was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't it's like. Do you think she is a sparkling wine? No, I don't think Anya is. Uh, I don't think Anya is a sparkling wine. I think she's more okay. I think she's more more pensive and um understated and I think Anya is um sophisticated and also um I think even though a lot of people would know Anya as a little bit more uh introverted and subdued she does have like moments of like really putting herself out there so I I actually think that Anya is um premier crew bottle of pinot noir where it's got this like softness and elegance to it but at the same time 
quite a bit of understated power behind it. I think that's what Anya is. That's what my Valentine's Day gift for Anya mm, would be. And expensive to boot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> what about Eric? Nice. What's Eric? What is Eric? What is Eric? So Eric is, I would say, um, uh, he's, he's extremely reliable, very, very loyal. Um, perhaps not necessarily as so like, so maybe I should say, um, Eric loves higher acid wines. He likes Riesling. Um, he likes like, you know, a, a, a nice tart rose in the summer. Like in summertime, he loves like telling everyone that he loves drinking rose very proudly. Um, and however, like Eric's not necessarily like a tart acidic person. No, he's not. I, I, no, he is not. So I don't think he's necessarily a an acid-driven cool climate Riesling either. Um, in some ways, he's very dependable. Also quite introverted. Um, not necessarily a person who would put himself out there. Probably plays it a little too safe at times. Um, but if you get him really fired up about something he's passionate about, usually about media or politics, he's more than happy to become a master debater and he's incredibly intelligent so he will kind of go toe to toe with you and he has he has the brain power to back it up so thinking about a wine that might kind of come off as a reliable and dependable and maybe not not the most um adventurous of wines but could hit you with power when when push comes to shove uh Maybe it it might be like um like a very like like Tokalon Vineyard Napa Cabernet style of wine. Oh, that's pretty. Is, I mean, Eric's pretty muscular. I think that's a good way to 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 yeah, put that together maybe too. Like right? you're thinking of physical appearance to like muscular wine that maybe like smooths out with a little bit of of age or decant or decanting because you need to can like a, if, you, if he's a big powerful wine you need to decant it to get him to open up and it does take time for eric to open up around other people so you know if you decant him in a beautiful decanter he will open up to you and show you all the layers that he has <laughs> i think that's a wonderful place to end things and i think frankly this was a lot more fun than talking about wine and chocolate like every other wine writer on the planet so thank you for indulging me on that exercise i yeah and i think for anyone who's looking to buy a last minute gift for the sweetie in their lives um whether it be your partner or a dear friend or a family member i think gifting them a wine that represents them is the sweetest kind of gift of all so next episode we are going to keep in line with lunar new year and mm -hmm. you, we've got something very special planned that I'm very excited about, and we're gonna recap. Um, we're gonna recap what I hope and what I think is gonna be a hell of a meal um, on the next episode. Gonna be a hell of a meal, which is the perfect way to wrap up Lunar New Year and a perfect time to taste things together. So, if you enjoy listening to us, please like and subscribe. I don't, I don't remember if you can like on podcasts. Please leave us a five star review and subscribe. We really appreciate your support. And remember, red underwear. Red underwear. Gong hei fa choi, everyone. Happy Lunar New Year.